This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Hello, this is Joel Hilliker, managing editor of the Philadelphia Trumpet News Magazine. Donald Trump has pulled America out of the Paris Climate Change Agreement, and this has some people hyperventilating about how he is dooming the planet to extinction. They might not be quite so dramatic about it, but they do talk about that agreement and other such efforts to reduce humankind's impact on the climate as if this is absolutely necessary for our planet's survival. But they're making some major assumptions, and we're going to talk with environmental biologist Andrew Miller about some of those assumptions. We'll have a very interesting discussion about just how much scientific or how little scientific consensus there actually is about man-made climate change. North Korea is one of the most repressive regimes in the world, and it's been making some serious threats against the United States lately. Why is it that this little nation is so strongly and virulently anti-American? A recent Washington Post article said, well, at least part of the blame lies with the United States and the way that we conducted ourselves in the Korean War. We'll talk with trumpet writer Abraham Blondeau about the history of the Korean War and why the Washington Post is wrong. North Korea, these uh, ballistic missiles that it has been firing, this is a country with a nuclear capability. This has brought the subject of nuclear war back into the headlines. We've seen a number of nuclear tests in recent decades, not only from unpredictable North Korea, but even a nation like unstable Pakistan. The Islamic Republic of Iran continues to develop nuclear weapons and missiles to deliver them. We've also learned how many former Soviet states have lax security, nuclear capability, and they're not taking uh, care to make sure that those, those armaments are secure. Even sites in America and Europe are vulnerable to theft. Well, what happens if those weapons get into the wrong hands? These are really important questions in this age of terrorism. In our third segment, we're going to talk with trumpet writer Brad McDonald about what it's like to experience a nuclear attack. He wrote an article about this a couple of years back about the people who experienced the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War II. This interview is from the archives, but I think it's quite relevant to us today, and it's an important subject for us to wrap our imaginations around. And I'll finish the program today with a poem from one of our listeners. We had a segment a couple of weeks back talking about the importance of good posture. And uh, this is a, a, a listener who said that it has been quite a trial to try to implement that instruction. All this on today's Trumpet Hour. Last week, U.S. President Donald Trump withdrew America from the Paris Climate Change Agreement. There are commentators who are acting like this is going to plunge the world into a future of climatic disasters. Now, in order to believe that, you have to have a whole lot of assumptions. And there's plenty of evidence showing that there are some pretty shaky assumptions. To talk about this, we have an environmental biologist, Andrew Miller, who is also a trumpet writer. Hello, Andrew. Hello. 
So the people behind the Paris climate deal, they basically say that there is virtually unanimous understanding in the scientific community that agreements like this one are absolutely necessary in order to protect the future of our planet. And I I just want to talk about some of the ways that, that that is actually incorrect. First of all, just how much scientific unanimity is there about this subject? Well, definitely not as much as you'd think. Uh, Probably a lot of our listeners have heard the 97% figure. Uh, uh, Former President Barack Obama had mentioned it several times during his presidencies that 97% of scientists believe that man-made global warming is real and dangerous, which is um, a pretty gross misrepresentations of the facts that 97% figure is based off a study that was done uh, of 12,000 peer-related journal articles in Australia. But when you actually look at the study, it says that 97% of climate scientists who take a dogmatic position on global warming believe that man-made climate change is real. And so when you actually look at the number of those 12,000, two-thirds of those journal articles said there's not enough evidence to make a proclamation either way. Wow. Then so roughly, it was the one-third that said we can make a proclamation. So amongst the one-third that said that you can dogmatically proclaim what's happening, 3% said man-made global warming is not happening, and 97% said man-made global warming is happening. But it totally leaves out the fact that two-thirds of scientists say that there's no proof to make either claim. Well, yeah, so that's, uh, <laughs> that's to, to say that that statistically misrepresents uh, the facts is uh, a little bit of an understatement. Right, so it's only 33% of climate scientists that say man-made global warming is happening. And even that figure, I mean, it got to be, a, I'm sure a lot of these people are well-meaning, but it is also an undeniable fact that the federal government in the United States has uh, given out $35 billion in climate change funding since 1989, and, and many... Um, Key academics, Thomas Sowell among them, has really pointed out that amongst climate change scientists, if you'd like to get some grants or a piece of that funding, it's really hard to get any of it if your research is trying to make the claim that man-made global warming isn't happening. Because just uh, basic human nature, I mean, if man-made global warming is a threat to the planet, that means we have to do whatever we can to stop it which means that we need government regulation of the economy. So there's definitely a vested interest, if you're a government bureaucrat, why you'd give a scientist money if his research is saying that government bureaucrats need more power to stop uh, ecological apocalypse. Okay, so uh, you you covered a lot of ground there, and I, I'd like to, maybe we can we can kind of parcel this out here over the next few questions. Going back to just the question of unanimity, um, uh, there are there are questions related to what is actually happening with the climate. It seems that the scientific community has gone from saying that the the world is cooling to saying that it's warming to saying that it's entering a period of chaos. Uh, looking at the the data scientifically, how how can we make sense of what's actually happening with the climate? It is fairly. Unanimous that are, I mean, there is some debate, but most scientists will admit that the climate has warmed 
approximately one degree Fahrenheit in the past hundred years, but it has not been a uniform warmer. Actually, surprisingly, um, most of that warming occurred during the first half of the 20th century between 1900 and 1950 when carbon emissions were not nearly as high as they are today. Mm-hmm. Like I said, during the 70s, the temperature was actually going down a little bit, uh, causing Newsweek and Time Magazine and a bunch of other uh, well-known Western media outlets to proclaim a new ice age was coming and global cooling was coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the temperature started to go up for a couple decades causing science to say, well, now global warming's the threat. And since the mid-90s, temperatures have pretty well stabilized, saying that now they usually use the term climate change because the temperature isn't actually cooling or warming for the past 10 years. But if you take the the broad look over a century, uh, they generally agree that temperatures have gone up one degree. So if you look at the that century in the context of a longer period and just what we understand about climate on the earth over, say, a period of millennia or even longer, uh, how, how does that, um, how, how unusual is it for the temperature to change for a degree over a period of 100 years? What we know, uh, extrapolating from like tree ring size, obviously trees grow faster when the climate's warmer, they grow slower when the climate's colder. Um, ice core data, it, it snows more in certain climatic conditions, like lake sediments. In the past 6,000 years, uh, climate has varied from 2 degrees colder than what it is right now to 2 degrees warmer than what it is right now. So this 1%, this 1 um, degree change we've seen over the last century is well within the Earth's natural climatic variation. It's actually... Um, actually, when you look at these tree ring data and these ice core data, it's actually a fairly predictable cycle of about a thousand years heating and cooling. So like 6,000 years ago, um, it's estimated that temperatures were probably two to three degrees hotter than they are right now. Um, if you're trying to compare that with like biblical history, that would have been like around the time Noah was alive, things were much warmer than they are right now. Then you kind of had a miniature ice age around like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob's time. Um, And then it got warm again, close to current temperatures, like during the reigns of King David and Solomon. Uh, Scientists call that the Minoan Minoan warm period because the Minoan civilization was also prominent during that time. Cooled down for a couple hundred years. Uh, then it was also there was a time period of warming during the Roman warm period, uh, miniature ice age during the Dark Ages, um, the medieval warm period. That's one you probably uh, would be most likely to have heard of. This is when the Vikings were exploring Greenland, which uh, and when um, even contemporary historical records have about like the grape harvest in parts of England that don't grow grapes today. Um, another cooler period around the time of the American Revolution. Um, And then this would be the, um, at least from the past 6,000 years, we'd be right in the midst of the Earth's uh, fifth warm period right now. So uh, 
it seems the the the, the narrative that the, the scientists or say that the that the governments of the world and the the Paris climate change agreement folks want to promote is that it is uh, man-made global uh, climate change it is uh, human endeavors today that are creating uh, so carbon emissions and these types of things this is the cause for this uh, this chaos that we're seeing. Uh, but you're talking about fluctuations that happen over a period of thousands of years. How, what sort of evidence are they looking at to link human activity with changes in the climate? Well, the, the main thing that when they try to say that is they say that obviously um, due to the burning of coal and oil and fossil fuels, there's carbon molecules in those fossil fuels that are released as carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And so they're trying to say that as the, the carbon dioxide um, increases in the atmosphere, uh, that forms like a blanket around the planet that keeps the heat in, which is uh, a scientific principle that you'd see on planets like Venus, where you have hundreds of times the carbon dioxide level you have on Earth. It is much warmer because of that. Uh, here on Earth, though, uh, as um, even like... Uh, British journalist Melanie Phillips points out the correlation isn't as neat as they're trying to um, to point it, as they're saying that, okay, well, as we the carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere go up, the temperature goes up. But it doesn't always work that way because obviously for carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere have been going up for the past two decades, but temperatures have been stalled. Uh, there have been times where carbon dioxide levels actually have gone down and temperatures gone up. If you're looking at ice core data, there were times of when carbon dioxide levels were higher than they are now and there was an ice age huh. so it's the the correlation between oh, and even pointing out um that there are times when temperatures go up and then carbon dioxide levels go up afterwards instead of before like you'd think uh it is also known that ocean water emits some carbon dioxide when it warms up so if you're talking about natural um natural heating cycles if the earth was getting warmer due to solar activity or some other natural cause that could also cause the oceans to emit more carbon dioxide later instead of being the other way around like the the general political consensus is that well man emits carbon dioxide and then the temperature goes up right so uh so how strong is the evidence? I mean, is it is it all just basically manufactured evidence uh, suggesting that, well, because we're driving the wrong kinds of cars and because we're uh, burning coal and these types of things, that's the reason why carbon emissions are increasing and therefore the climate is changing? Right. Well, and like I said, that is... Uh I myself would probably fall uh, into the, the category of those two-thirds of scientists who just say that it's really hard to say uh, evidence either way because it is known that the planet is roughly one degree warmer than it was a century ago. Uh, carbon dioxide levels do happen to be uh, at least as far as they can tell, and there's some controversy over their measurement techniques um, a little higher right now, but that correlation hasn't always held true over over history. So it is kind of one of those things that um, there is definitely a school of thought that it's solar um, solar activity. You can like, track sunspots that the sun itself goes through cycles where it's a little hotter and a little colder. 
and that if the sun's warmer and that heats up the earth, that causes the oceans to emit some carbon dioxide, and so they come up the other way. Um, so right now, it's, it would be hard for me to say how much of the the data about high carbon dioxide is manufactured because it there does look to be some compelling evidence that carbon dioxide may be higher than it was 100 years ago, same as temperatures higher than 100 years ago. But to say that's due to man-made industrial activity, there's not enough evidence to say either way. So you were talking earlier about just the research dollars and how they they basically tend to get funneled toward those scientists who are basically proving a pre-existing idea uh, and those who are uh, producing research that tends to go counter to the received wisdom don't get that money. And so that, that accounts for a fair amount of the disparity between those studies that supposedly underline this, this theory and those that, that run counter to it. Right. Well, there is, I mean, that is definitely, um, you'll, you'll hear now and again, people talk about like the oil industry financing anti-global warming research. And, and there's probably been a couple billion dollars, uh, given to climate change research by energy companies, but that pales in significance to the $35 billion that the government has been giving scientists that that um, are producing research that verifies that the solution that man-made global warming is happening is and the solution is give the government more power. Right. So this, this is really maybe uh, gives us an indication of what some of the underlying reasons for why these uh, governments are, are moving down this path and they're pushing this so hard is it does it. At the end of the day, it, it means they have more power. They, they're able to regulate people more. They can uh, basically create winners and looter, losers uh, among a free market economy to, to shape it the way that they want to. Right. And, and of course, the United States, we don't necessarily have a, a Green Party. But in Europe, most nations have their own Green Party. That's their pro-environmental party. Uh, and almost to the last one, they're all uh, socialist parties. And you look at their platform, I mean, a lot of the more radical ones will even say that like free market capitalism and an environmentally friendly earth cannot coexist. Uh, and so that's it is kind of one of those things that um, especially if you push it to the apocalyptic levels that a lot of these I mean, if you're if you're trying to make the case that man-made global uh, carbon dioxide emissions are uh enhancing the natural heating and cooling of the earth by a degree or so that's not a huge accidental crisis not not enough to even if that's true it wouldn't be enough to like throw away democracy and free market capitalism to stop the planet from getting one degree warmer Mm -hmm. but if you can uh, exaggerate the research to the point where like well the planet's going to get four, five, ten degrees warmer, ocean levels are going to rise 20 feet, Washington, D.C. and the state of Florida are going to be underwater unless you surrender um, your ability to run your own business to a government bureaucrat who knows better than you do what type of emissions and what you can be burning and what you can be manufacturing. Uh, That would be uh, 
really a, a dream for anyone who likes uh, a central planned economy, mm-hmm. saying that, well, whether you like socialism or not, you have to do this. Otherwise, you're all going to burn up and drown. Right. Well, a fascinating subject. There's a lot of uh, different angles to it and facets to it, and uh, we'd like to uh, include some of that and write some of that up in the, the trumpet coming up. We've been talking with trumpet writer Andrew Miller about some of the evidence undermining the idea that climate change is uh, directly caused by human endeavors, certainly on the scale that uh, that the the people who are promoting the Paris Climate Change Agreement and so on uh, would have it have you believe. But uh, Andrew is working on an article about this, and uh, hopefully we can we can get this into uh, an upcoming edition of the Trumpet Print Edition. You can keep your eye on the Trumpet.com for that. Andrew, we appreciate your time. Thank you. is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. The Korean Peninsula is a very tense place right now. North Korea is one of the most repressive and authoritarian regimes in the world. It's very unpredictable. It's been firing a lot of missiles lately and making direct threats against the United States. The regime of Kim Jong-un is extremely anti-American. And why is that? Well, a recent Washington Post article said we can pin part of the blame, at least, on the United States itself and the way that we conducted ourselves in the Korean War. Trumpet writer and resident history buff Abraham Blondeau says that is not the case. Uh, The Washington Post has it all wrong. He's here in the studio to recall for us some of this important history. Hello, Abraham. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's good to have you. Uh, so talk about this Washington Post analysis, first of all. What, what, what is uh, their view? Why is it that they think that uh, what, uh, America is to blame for the anti-Americanism in North Korea? Sure. So uh, the perspective they take on it is that um, the North Korea, they have propaganda. They teach your children that Amer- Americans are wolves and uh, that they're predators and that they're evil imperialistic people. And the way they uh, prove it is by using history from the Korean War, that America was attacking North Korea. And so um, and that's part of where that hatred comes from, at least in their narrative. And so the Washington Post says, well, there's a small kernel of truth in that because we did kill a lot of North Korean civilians. It was a very brutal war um, between both sides. And so uh, America has some a little bit of blame for why North Korea hates us. And uh, I believe that's this. Uh, ridiculous, but the main proof they use is the air campaign um, where we dropped more bombs on North Korea in the three years than we did in the entire Pacific theater during World War II. So they use that, and then just some quotes from historians who say that um, the struggle between the two nations created this bitterness that North Korea still resent us for today. And so um, it is interesting take and they they do bring up some good points but i think they reached the wrong conclusion and that is um north korea started the war (laughs) and also that um everything america did was retaliatory and um was done out of survival it wasn't done because uh, out of hatred or anything like that and so the idea that america should apologize or um feel shameful for what we did in north korea is is um i think uh crazy because it was a just war And uh, if anything, we should have used more force to end the regime, the communist regime there. And this coming from a Canadian. 
So, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so obviously, uh, well, let, let's go ahead and uh, I, I'd like to talk more about just the um, say proportionality of America's response to to what North Korea was doing, and specifically with respect to the air campaign. Maybe we could just back up a little bit and you look at the situation in North Korea. Uh, you know this very repressive regime in the north, this dem- democracy in the south. Uh, how did we end up there, and why is that relevant to uh, to the question of what America did in the Korean War? Sure, yeah, it's a great question. And um, just to give a, a brief overview of the conflict, um, because the origins are very important, and that is uh, Japan occupied Korea during World War II, and so when Japan surrendered, um, America and the Soviet Union decided to split it in two. Um, to uh, uh, have some kind of agreement like in Berlin and Germany where it was split into different occupying forces. And so uh, during that time, and then they were going to unite the two sides uh, eventually. But in that time, Stalin had Kim Jong, uh, sorry, Kim Il-sung uh, ha- as leader of the North. Uh, America had Sigmund Rhee You said South. that, uh, so Russia was responsible for uh, for the North Korean leader, they ba- basically put him into power there. Yes, sir. Yeah, the, the Soviet leadership did put the uh, the Kim dynasty in place. They're the ones who made him leader of uh, North Korea. And so um, the 38th parallel, the current border, that was just made as a rough uh, middle ground between the two sides. And so um, after World War II, no one expected the Cold War to happen. But as Stalin uh, was more and more unwilling to cooperate with America... Um, Korea became an example of where um, you had communist aggression starting to to boil over. And so uh, one thing that uh, she points out here, or the the author in the Washington Post points out, is that uh, Kim Il-sung wanted to unite Korea, and that's true. Um, But it had a lot to do with Joseph Stalin. Stalin either ordered it or he encouraged Kim Il-sung to attack in the first place. So the Korean War has to be viewed in, um, in the context of the Soviet Union, of Joseph Stalin, uh, using it as a test of American will. Um, but basically, um, for five years, America had been um, demobilizing. So when North Korea attacked, they overwhelmed the Americans and the South Koreans, pushed them to the to Pusan in the south, basically overran the entire uh, peninsula until MacArthur came from Japan. Uh, in Chon, he surrounded the North Koreans, pushed them back to the 38th parallel, um, and then he attacked north. But he went too close to the Yalu River, which is the border of North Korea and China. Mm-hmm. And then China attacked and pushed America back to the 38th parallel. And that's where the current border is. And that's how basically the war ended was uh, along those lines, roughly. Um, but what's interesting is that um, it was American response was uh, was to aggression from the communist side. That mm-hmm. That's a very clear uh, fact of history. And then Americans' response was actually limited. Um Although four-fifths of America's Air Force was being used in Korea, um, President Truman uh, used actually created the Truman Doctrine uh, from the Korean War. And that is, we don't have to defeat communism by invading them. We just need to contain them. And so Korea is the current circumstances we have today of a North Korean regime and South Korea being a democratic country is caused by the deliberate policy of the United States to contain North Korea and not conquer them. And so that and that's where uh, there's a lot of controversy with uh, Douglas MacArthur because he viewed that differently than uh, President Truman did at the time. 
So in that maybe that's a question that we could return to uh, if we have time <clears throat> later on. Just the fact that uh, the, the the problems that we see with Korea today really do trace right back to the way that the situation was handled back in the times of the Korean War. Um, let's go back now and talk about, uh, say, the air campaign. And this was this is really a point that the the Washington Post uh, criticizes the United States pretty heavily and says it was disproportionate. It was because the the bombing was was so extreme, this is sort of what engendered this hostility of the North against the United States. Put that in context for us. Sure. Yeah, if you do look at it just statistically through that narrow lens, it can look disproportionate because North Korea didn't really have an air force. Um, what they did have was provided by the Soviet Union. They sent planes and, and pilots to help fight off the Americans. And so um, if you look at it, um, the United States dropped six, 635,000 tons of bombs in Korea, um, which is about 130,000 more than the Pacific Theater in World War II, so a huge amount. Um, basically, all of North Korea was leveled. Most of the major cities were, were leveled. Uh, all the important industrial complexes were. Which um, there, there wouldn't have been a whole lot of that. Correct. Yeah, North Korea is a very low-technology country, and so uh, the Washington Post says... They bomb America bombed North Korea so much they ran out of targets. That's that's true, but that's because there weren't that many in the first place. Because North Korea didn't have a lot of industry, and so the reason why there were um, a lot of civilian casualties, uh, much like the same policy the Allies had against Germany, was that um, during World War II, is that they wanted to uh, break the will of the communist people in North Korea, but also um, a lot of civilians a mass around military targets. You had a lot of refugees, uh, a lot of people right near military targets. And so they became um, unfortunate victims of American, uh, of American air power. And and how much of that was actually by design? Uh, very little. Um, when America, when the American bomber command were bombing cities and places close to civilian places, they did accept there'd be some casualties. But under no circumstances were there any deliberate attempts to kill just civilian population. Well, what I mean is what, how much of it was the design of the North uh, in terms of putting civilians in, in peril or, say, positioning uh, targets, military targets, close to civilians in order to, uh, I guess, make it less palatable for the United States to target those areas? Well, yeah, that's, actually, that's a, a, g- a great point you bring up because there was a lot of um, deception that way in which um, the North Koreans would use civilians to fight against um, American troops or they would wear civilian clothing and so they can try to get behind American lines and then start um, causing havoc and so for uh, American fighter pilots who made low uh, strafing runs on, on columns in North Korea and American troops they had a very difficult time telling who was enemy and who was, who was friendly mm-hmm. uh, who was a civilian because they dressed like civilians, and uh, a lot of the, the North Korean army told their civilians to go and kill American soldiers. Um, and so it made a very difficult choice. Do you um, sacrifice the life of your, your fellow soldiers just because you're afraid to kill someone who you don't really know is an enemy or not? And so a lot of the civilian casualties are caused by North Korea using their people uh, to deceive Americans or by basically using them as cannon fodder. Um, to, to go take down American troops instead of the, their own soldiers. Uh, looking at the Korean War, a lot of historians just talk about the, the brutality of that war. and It was really uniquely brutal in, in a lot of ways. What is the cause of that? If there is, 
if there are people who want to uh, pin the blame on the United States for perpetrating that brutality, uh, what would your answer to that be? Well, the, the answer is that it, it's that brutality stems from the way the communist armies were fighting. And uh, there's a lot of one book I, I quote in particular in the article called American Soldiers by Peter Kinsvater um, documents the brutalities that the North Koreans and the Chinese uh, did against American troops, especially the North Koreans. Um, they would execute prisoners, mutilate bodies, um, lots of terrible things. Did that to civilians too. And so uh, the American troops, uh, they did uh, have a lot of brutal fighting and they did kill there was a no prisoner policy, basically. Um, a no prisoner. The United States would not take prisoners, though. Correct. Saying. Yeah, and in some in a very informal way, just because um, a lot of Chinese and North Korean troops would try to kill Americans if they tried to um, give them medical aid, they would pull grenade pins, and they didn't want to risk more lives by that. And uh, the North Koreans and Chinese fought with such disregard of life, disregard of their own lives, but also the lives of anyone else that um, it did. Uh, harden the American troops against them because they, um, this, the hand to hand combat, this, the intense experience made the Americans realize that they had to fight to the death because they didn't want to be captured. Um, they want their friends to be captured and mutilated. And so it created this really bitter antagonism of the American troops against the, their enemies because of how they were treated. The, the United States forces, uh, actually they, they were very adamant, not, wanting to be captured by communist forces because of the treatment that those who were captured received. Yes, yeah. They, uh, a lot of them realized it's better to fight to the death than to be captured. And um, the, those who were captured, they, uh, especially early on in the war, they were treated more poorly. At the end, um, the Chinese and North Koreans would try to um, convert them to communism hmm. uh, because of that's their doctrine that Mao had, um, that uh, communism superior, so the soldiers should probably want to come over to our side. So just a lot of strange um, indoctrination tactics. Some of them are are absurd, but uh, a number, a handful of American and British soldiers did convert to communism while they were in captivity. Um, so just a lot of um, that was more towards the end of the war. But basically, um, any all the bitterness, the 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 scale of combat was caused by the communist forces. Their their disregard for life and their policy of basically um, annihilation. They want to destroy the enemy. And so the lack of clemency and mercy showed by the, um, the, the communists towards the Americans, the Canadians, and the, um, uh, and the uh, uh, British troops who also fought in Korea um, had to be responded to in kind for, out of survival. Just they had, The troops had to fight with that level of ferocity just to survive the combat. And so um, that's not really addressed in the Washington Post speech, but that's important to realizing the nature of North Korea, the North Korean regime. Is that's the kind of barbarity they they uh, they try to indoctrinate their people with? So the Washington Post is looking back at this history and drawing the moral lesson that well, the United States just needs to conduct its war making activities with greater circumspection. That we need to be uh, more careful in the way that we treat our enemies. Otherwise, we're going to engender this kind of uh, irrational anti-Americanism that we see in the uh, North Korean regime today. Uh, you take very different lessons from it, I presume. I just wonder, uh, when you look at this history, what sort of lessons do you think we can take from it? Well, I think the big lesson uh, to take away, the main one, and a lot of people are starting to realize this more, is that uh, North Korea exists because we did not stop it, that we allowed it to exist. 
And if America should apologize for anything from the Korean War, it's that we allowed Kim Il-sung to continue ruling and that we did not stand up to China in the winter of 1950 like we could have. And uh, just in we have the benefit of hindsight. Look at now, North Korea has nuclear weapons. They're becoming a, a major threat to the security of the world. And all that's only possible because America decided to have a limited response. And uh, President Truman and the after MacArthur was fired, uh, General Ridgway, who was in command, uh, they decided that policy because it would be very costly in terms of men and, and money. But also they knew the American people didn't have the willpower to support another offensive against the communists. And so I think the, the great lesson from the Korean War is that limited war does not pay off. It just leads to more problems in the future. But also it reflected um, the lack of will and uh, was kind of a, a reflection on how far American fell in those five years since World War II ended. That we went from being a superpower that ended Nazi Germany, we took down Japan. There was just a lot of um, strength there to where we can't even overcome little North Korea. And they had a, a sizable Chinese army with them, mm-hmm. uh, supporting them. But still, there wasn't that same resolve that was there just five years before. And it did show uh, a big moral decline that uh, Herbert Armstrong talked a lot about at the time. And he said in um, 1961, in A Plain Truth, that America lost their, or has won their last war, talking about World War II and how, uh, I think it's interesting that Korea, the Korea is called the Forgotten War in, in, a, in American history. But the reason we lost some reason we have all of these problems is because we forgot God. And that's why uh, the Korean war was so tragic. Why it was um, so uh, uh, mediocre in some ways uh, we didn't achieve a final victory. We just, uh, we settled for a ceasefire for our armistice that's still there today. And why we allowed the, basically the demented dictatorship of the Kims to exist to this day. Just, we lacked the will to, uh, to pursue victory. Very interesting. We've been talking with trumpet writer Abraham Blondeau about uh, the Korean War and lessons that we can take from that. He's written an article that's up on thetrumpet.com called The Washington Post Gets the Korean War All Wrong, uh, criticizing some of the uh, conclusions that the Washington Post author uh, made about the Korean War and why we're facing the problems with North Korea today. Uh, we appreciate your uh, looking into that. It's a really excellent article, a lengthy, uh, lengthy analysis piece. Go uh, read that on thetrumpet.com. Thanks a lot, Abraham. Thanks for having me on the show. This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. The Iranian nuclear deal has raised the specter of Iran becoming a nuclear state. Now, nuclear war is something that's very unreal to most people. It's been a long time since anyone suffered the effects of a nuclear bomb being detonated. I remember as a kid, I grew up toward the end of the Cold War. Nuclear war with Russia was on a lot of people's minds. In 1983, the movie The Day After caused quite a stir in school. We were talking about the possibility of a bomb going off. We even had bomb drills. Today, though, the prospect of a bomb doesn't seem very real to many people. Trumpet writer Brad McDonald has written an article discussing the reality of nuclear war by looking at those who experienced its horrors firsthand, the people who went through the attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of World War II. I have Mr. McDonald here with me via Skype from our office in the UK. How are you doing, Brad? Doing well, thank you. 
So this book, can you tell us about this book that um, gives a firsthand account from the people who experienced this? Right. The title of the book is Hiroshima, and uh, some of the older people in the audience may have heard of it. They probably have heard of it. It was written by John Hershey. It was a bestseller. Uh, millions of copies have been distributed around the world um, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And it was required reading for a lot of children in the 60s, 70s, 80s. It sounds like, uh, I mean, it was required reading for you too, even in uh, 1981, 1982. Um, I, I it, never read the book. Uh, I remember it being a big, a big deal. This was in the middle of the Cold War, and it was, it was you know, right. mutually assured destruction between the United States and Russia. And that, that television movie, it was a huge sensation in the United States, and it was the the topic of a lot of discussion, even in, in elementary schools at that time. Right. Right. Um, well, the story is in May, 1946, the New Yorker magazine sent John Hershey. He was, he, I think he'd written one book by then. He was a, a regular journalist for the New Yorker. They sent John to Japan and they wanted him to interview survivors of, uh, the Hiroshima, Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs. They wanted him to visit those two cities and they wanted him to get a firsthand look at the destructiveness of a nuclear uh, bomb. This was the first time in history that something of, of something like this had been, uh, had occurred. So uh, a lot of people had, had maybe seen a few images that there, there had been some newspaper articles, but uh, the New Yorker sent John over there with the, with the goal of making it real um, for the audience. So he went over there. He, uh, he was over there for a month or two. He conducted hundreds of interviews with survivors and uh, the book Hiroshima tells the story of six individuals who were in Hiroshima when Little Boy was dropped. I think it was August 6th, 1945. Um, and the, the Little Boy was the, the name of the bomb that was dropped on, on Hiroshima. So John goes through and, and he tells the story of these six individuals. Uh, one of them was an office clerk. One was a doctor. One was a priest. And, and he just relays uh, – the, the hours and even the days after Hiroshima was dropped on uh, after little boy was dropped on Hiroshima so you get an idea of the the level of destruction say close to the detonation site right uh, and then obviously the effects are um, are different as it goes out the people who uh, survived this obviously were some distance away enough that they were able to survive the initial blast but then the effects that they personally experienced were quite severe from the the after effects right i think 60 65,000 people were killed instantly um in the in the zone right around right around the impact zone 100,000 were injured hiroshima was a city of 250,000 and and pretty much the entire city uh was was destroyed um the people who survived they were all at least 1,000 to 1,500 to 2,000 meters from the impact point and uh you know, but they all felt the effects, obviously. They were thrown across the room. They were buried in rubble. They experienced terrible, terrible burns. Um, they witnessed friends and family be killed. And uh, I mean, they, they experienced it very intimately. And like I said, they were 1,000 or 1,500 meters away from, from where it actually landed. So what were the effects, say, over uh, it, well, in the initial hours after the blast? Well, at first, uh, at first, there was just shock and silence. No one had a clue what had just happened. Um, each of these these individuals that Hershey interviewed recalled seeing a blinding light and 
Um, then just a few seconds later, a massive explosion. They were all thrown against a wall, thrown against a rock. They were all dislodged. And then for the, for a few minutes after, there was just shock and disbelief. Um, Hershey recounts how, how one or two of them kind of just walked around. And, and a lot of people were expecting that a bomb had been dropped locally. They expected to see a few houses blown up on their street. Uh, but, you know, these people walked to the top of the hill and they just looked around, and as far as the eye could see, houses were just completely flattened. There was smoke. There was this this miasma, as as Hershey put it, which is just uh, miasma. I think it means a there was a there was a putrid stench, um, kind of like a chemical smell in the air. And then over the next few minutes, and over the next hour or two or three, um, what happened is is anyone those who were closest to the detonation or to the impact uh, where the bomb impacted and survived, those people started making their way. Out. Obviously, they were running away from from where the explosion occurred, and and you know, these six survivors helped those people, and, and they talk about just just some horrible horrible images of you know people with their eye sockets uh, or their eyes melted, and and um, you know the, the the fluid running down their cheeks, people with uh, skin that had, had had peeled from their body. Um, one of the one of the individuals talked about how he was he was trying to lift or he was trying to uh, to pull someone into a boat. That he was on, and 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 the skin on their on their arm just kind of peeled off in his hands. Um, it, there really is just it's scenes that that are that are hard for us to imagine. Um, and you know, if if any of us can imagine them, usually it's with the help of a movie or special effects in you know some Hollywood film. But this was real. This this really happened, and uh, it happened to thousands and thousands of people. It does seem like the, the, the people, the New Yorkers sending the, this journalist over there recording these and ensuring that these images were preserved and spread and the people who wanted to introduce this into school curricula, that type of thing, they were trying to make something that is difficult for the mind to grasp more real to us, to understand the, the effects, to understand just how devastating something like this can be. You can look at uh, in a history book and you can see statistics um, and it seems to me like the same kind of uh, failure to grasp reality kind of surrounds this whole negotiation and deal that ha- has been going on with Iran. The specter of nuclear war just is not real to us, and it is something that's worth setting your setting your imagination on. Right. The the term nuclear war or, or uh, the thought of a nuclear bomb exploding, you know, it's either. It's addressed in a movie. We have a James Bond detonating a nuclear weapon and saving the day. Or it's just a political talking point. Uh, it's, it's, it's a political issue. It's more of an intellectual um, exercise. We, I, I, I can't think of too many people, uh, at least recently, who have really sat down and just talked about, okay, what, is a, what does a nuclear explosion look like? What does it feel like? What does it smell like? Um, I, I can't think of you know, too many news organizations um, approaching the subject of nuclear warfare from that perspective. No, it's not uh, something we want to think about. Right. It's, it's unpleasant to think about. Uh, and, you know, human nature doesn't like to think about unpleasant things or things that make it feel uncomfortable or that might be emotionally disturbing. So we don't, we don't do it. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's not a reality. It, it seems to me like what you're describing, that, that that aspect of human nature that wants to put these kinds of thoughts out of mind, that that's that's kind of underpinning a lot of what's happening politically right now with respect to Iran. It's almost like the unwillingness to accept the the idea that someone would actually use a weapon like this. Right. And I think it's 
I think it gets back to the intellectual vanity of these guys sitting at the negotiating table with Iran. They think that they're smart enough to prevent this from ever happening. And, and it's not just the politicians, it's the media, and I think it's the mainstream public in general. As a society, and particularly Western society, you know, there's a confidence. Uh, uh, we, as a society, we think that we're so advanced morally and we're so advanced in our, in our basic human emotions that, well, you know, we're so advanced, we're so sophisticated, we're so enlightened in the 21st century that no one would think about dropping a nuclear weapon they, 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 they trust in their ability to, uh, uh, you know, reason with someone who wants to, to potentially drop a nuclear weapon or they, they think that they can be talked out of it. Uh, they just overestimate their ability to, to, uh, to solve the problem or, or to they, – they think they can solve it with conversation, with reason, with negotiation, with compromise. Uh, and I think it just reveals a massive false sense of security and at, at, at its core – a basic trust in the self. Yeah, just the, the basic goodness of human beings. And they're backed up by a whole a lot of people who are so caught up in distractions and other pursuits that they're not, they, they have no, no reason to think about those things until the day comes when something like this actually does blow up in our faces. Right, right. Yeah, you, you look at the 21st century Western world and you... you it doesn't look like we're living in the Middle Ages. We're far less barbaric. You know, we're far less simple-minded. We're, we're far less intolerant. This is what people are thinking. We're far less intolerant. Uh, everything, is, everything is pretty and shiny. And uh, <laughs> our, our leaders have PhDs and they've been to university where they, where they learn how to negotiate and form compromises. Uh, you, you know, we're beyond detonating nuclear weapons. That's so 20th century. Uh, <laughs> you know, but, the interesting thing is just to, to contrast everything that you're describing with, say, the images that are coming out of the Middle East that right. were being provided by the Islamic State uh, and just some of the realities of terrorist attacks that are going on throughout that region. And you see some of the barbarity that's taking place even just south of the United States border within Mexico. Right. You realize... You know, we're not so different from some of those more uh, darker periods in human history. The difference is that the the destructive potential of the weapons that are available is much, much greater. Absolutely. The little boy was a 15 kiloton nuclear bomb. That's that's 0.015 megatons. Uh, it killed 60,000 people. It injured 100,000 people. It wiped out an entire city. Today, you know, we have about 20,000 nuclear bombs uh, around the planet. Most of these bombs are significantly larger in size than Little Boy. Little Boy, as I mentioned, was 15 kiloton. Today's nuclear bombs are 15,000 to 20,000 kilotons. Some of them are 50,000 kilotons, which is more than 3,000 times more powerful than that bomb that was dropped on uh, Hiroshima. Unbelievable. And as, as, as you alluded to, you know, not only do we have these weapons, 20,000 of them on the planet, but we have, let's say, uh, uh, we see the mental or the psychological uh, requirements to start a nuclear war present on this earth. You know, the decision to start a nuclear war, it's, it, it happens in someone's mind and, and they're influenced by one, you know, they're influenced by fear. Or maybe they're influenced by uncertainty. Or maybe they're influenced by a desperate hatred for whomever they drop the bomb on. Maybe they're a religious fanatic. 
and they believe it's their duty to to start you know world world war three um we we see the the psychological requirements for nuclear war yeah. as i mentioned it's it's there uh, the motivation for great conflict or the motivati- motivation for, uh, for nuclear war, it's there. Gerald Flurry talks about this in this uh, Key of David program that will be airing this Friday. Uh, the, the fact that an Iranian nuke, a nuclear weapon in the hands of an Iranian leader is much different than it is in the hands of any other nation that's ever possessed these weapons because of that religious zealotry aspect of it. There's right. a there's an extremely unpredictable like the the whole concept of mutually assured destruction is founded on the fundamental uh, desire to survive and to protect to protect your people and and uh, you know the those elements of of uh, civilization that have prevailed that would prevent someone from doing that it does it doesn't work in this in this uh, that model doesn't work if you have someone at the helm who is actually seeking apocalypse. Right, exactly, and then we can't forget that that this world is influenced and led, you know, by by a, 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 a spiritual influence by a, a you know, by Satan the devil, and he loves conflict, he loves war, he has no hesitation uh, inflicting suffering on mankind. When you um, put the descriptions, say, from this journalist who recorded what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki immediately after World War II and hold it up against biblical prophecies of exactly what's going to happen in this world in the days just leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ, you see a whole lot of, of overlap. You see a lot of alignment there. Right. There are a number of prophecies. Isaiah has two or three prophecies. Uh, there's prophecies of nuclear war in Matthew 24. The book of Revelation has imagery which, which uh, implies nuclear destruction. Um, I haven't got it in front of me, but there's a prophecy in Isaiah that, that talks about in the end time, when the conflict comes uh, in the end time, you know, that, that weapons will be used, warfare will be used, that will result in people's eyeballs melting in their sockets, just just like Hershey recalls in, in his book. Um, a prophecy in Joel talks about blinding flashes of light across the, across the earth. Again, Hershey recalls that in his book. That's what these people saw. Uh, immediate or, or as soon as the bomb was was dropped, um, and you know, there are just a number of prophecies that that very clearly uh, the way the prophecy is described and the um, the devastation that is experienced it can only come about as a result of nuclear uh, explosions. Right. You don't look at conventional weapons creating right. these kinds of conditions. Exactly. Yeah, amazing. It's really, really important to subject to try to wrap our minds around, and we know that it's going to become a reality very soon, and you can see conditions in the world today leading us right down the primrose path to that future, a repetition of history only many times worse. Thank you, Mr. McDonald. The article is called Fire from the Sky by Brad McDonald. It's uh, due to be in the coming edition of the uh, the trumpet the september issue of the uh, print edition of the trumpet news magazine and you can read it online at the trumpet.com thanks for your time brad you're welcome it's time for today's last word We had a recent segment about the importance of good posture, and uh, I received this 
poem from one of our listeners that I thought I would share with you. It's a, a short little poem. We'll use this for today's last word. I've been told as I've grown older, too round has grown each shoulder. So being told this is true, I sought instruction on what to do. Firstly, put your back to the wall until the back of your head is also touching the wall. I did just what they said. Then walk away still with your head held in that position. And unfortunately, I've not yet recovered from that not normal transition. Instead, my neck is very stiff. And it really hurts when I try to even turn my head sideways, so must look out of the corner of my eye. Then I found when, with my head down, and oh yes, a bent back, my chest was really caved in, so figured that surely is a bit slack. But continually hoisting up my chest and trying to keep it there, I, by a minute-by-minute exercise of poor posture, am made aware. When I sit at the computer or sit down at the piano to play or digging in the garden, Do I good posture display? And so, because of my trial, and you're talking this week on this subject, of always maintaining good posture, this health rule we must not neglect, it is a tremendous achievement to be able to look forward to looking people straight in the eye. That is, if they have good posture, too. I'm Joel Hilliker, and we're coming to the end of Trumpet Hour. Send us your comments on the program by emailing letters at thetrumpet.com. I want to thank my guests, Andrew Miller, Abraham Blondeau, and Brad McDonald. Thanks to our staff, Dwight Falk and Josh Sloan. I'll leave you with this thought from Lena Horn. It's not the load that breaks you down. It's the way you carry it. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. been listening to trumpet hour on trumpet radio 101.3 kpcg and online at kpcg.fm understand your world